0: Hello members and people of the podcast, hi there, let's continue with our Salem Witch Trials. The Salem village parsonage that Paris had won was a substantial house for the day, befitting the prominence of the minister in the community. Built with a massive timber frame, the core of the house measured 42 feet long and 20 feet wide. The two-storey home consisted of two rooms on each floor, with one room on each side of the massive central chimney, in what is known as a hall and parlour plan. The principal room downstairs was the hall, where most daily activities took place, from cooking around the large fireplace to eating meals and reading the scriptures. The other first-floor room was the parlour, which served as more formal living space. It housed the family's best possessions and also doubled as a master bedroom. Upstairs, the hall chamber and parlour chambers normally served as bedrooms, though Reverend Paris used one for his study. A lean-to had been added onto the back of the Salem Village Parsonage by 1692. Footage, but described the devil approaching her once when she was in the lean-to chamber. In 1692. The lean-to of the Paris parsonage probably consisted of just one service room, and possibly the dairy, which measured approximately 10 feet by 10 feet. A lean-to running along the full length of the back side of a home creates a house, a form known as a salt box. A form often considered to be the typical home of early New England, because so many survive to this day. However, the average family in the 1690s occupied a much more humble residence, perhaps consisting of just one room, with lots above for sleeping. Some of these houses had dirt floors. None of these small, simple homes survive, as they were either expanded into large dwellings or torn down to make way for more substantial houses. Despite its impressive size, the Salem Village Parsonage had its modest features as well, Another sign of the limited financial resources of the community. The house had only a 15 by 15 foot cellar, under just one room. This cut building costs considerably, as digging and stoning a cellar required a substantial amount of work, most of it done by skilled stonemason. This cellar was inside the footprint of the building and did not serve as its foundation. Instead, the house sat on substantial timber beams that were laid directly on the ground. The only stonework was a small pile of rocks placed under the beams at the corners to level the ground and add a bit of stability. Such earth-fast buildings were relatively common in the New England in the 17th century and were even lived in by some wealthy colonists. However, with wooden sills sitting directly on the earth, such dwellings have Relatively short life expectancies. The Salem Village Parsonage, it, Parsonage it lasted barely a 100 years. In 1784, Reverend Benjamin Wadsworth built at his own cost a substantial Georgian home close to the decano Parsonage. While the Salem Village Parsonage is long gone, The 1683 residence of the Topsfield Minister still stands. The Parson and House named for its first document was a two-story hall and parlour house of dimensions almost identical to those of Salem Village's counterpart. The main differences between the two was that the Topsfield Parsonage featured a substantial stone foundation under the entire house. Like its old parsonage, the community of Salem Village lacked a solid foundation and decay would quickly commence. Regardless of whether people lived in a salt box or a cake, There was no escaping the fact that these houses were small, crowded and dark. Very little privacy. A far cry from the quaint homes depicted in New England lore and legend. Windows were expensive imports from England, so they tended to be small. And their greenish glass further reduced the light. Candles and simple oil lamps did not help the situation, nor did the unpainted interior woodwork. The home would have been full of smoke from the fireplaces and other smells of daily living, ranging from the unemptied chamber pot in the stew bones from last night's dinner thrown just outside the front door. Nonetheless, they were more than adequate for early New Englanders who spent long hours outside tending to their livestock crops and other chores. Hmm. So as you can imagine, it Uh, wasn't great living back then you know, I mean think about being crowded in a very small house with those smells Mm, not good while New England Puritans worked hard and lived in hierarchical yeah it says hierarchical and patriarchal society, they are often wrongly stereotyped as dull prudish people who work dark Clothes and constantly frowned It says They work dark clothes I'm not sure if it means war The Puritans had a rich, vibrant culture They believed in sober mirth They had fun, enjoyed a good joke They drank in moderation And partook of companionable meals at the tavern They enjoyed fine possessions Puritan furniture was often painted In gaudy colours Or richly carved out of woods of different hues Fancy chair seats were embroidered in turkey work, resembling the bright and ornate Turkish carpets that graced some homes. Puritans dressed their station. The wealthy often wore bright-coloured clothes decorated with fancy lace and with gold and silver buttons. Only those of more modest wealth and stature, who tried to dress like their betters, found themselves before the court for violating the sumptuary laws. Most fancily dressed people in Salem Village would have been members of the Putnam and Porter families, the elite of the community, who were also the leaders of the growing factional conflict within it. John Putnam Sr. and John Porter Sr. were early and successful settlers of Salem Farms, respected members of the Salem Town Church. Both men would serve as select men and hold the local officers, By John Putnam's death in 1662, um, he had amassed 800 acres of land in the western part of Salem village to pass to his sons. John Porter Sr. was the largest property owner in Salem, one of the wealthiest men in the region. When Porter died in 1676, his estate was valued at £2,753 and included almost 2,000 acres of land with most holdings focused on the eastern side of the village. It doesn't sound like a lot now, guys, but back then that would be the equivalent of hundreds of thousands of pounds. His farms included 60 sheep and lambs, 55 head of cattle, 13 horses, making it perhaps the largest livestock farm in the region. A guest to his well-appointed home, would have been impressed with his many fine possessions, including silver spoons, a rare mark of wealth, status, and refinement at the time. Noteworthy, too, was that the probate inventory drawn up at his death's record is three indentured English servants and other servants, presumably slaves. Most of this estate was passed on to Porter's three sons, Joseph, Benjamin, and Israel. On his death, they became the wealthiest men and largest taxpayers in Salem Village. Having settled on the eastern side of Salem Village, the porters tended to associate more with Salem Town than with the actual village. Israel and Joseph Porter each served, but one year each on Salem Village Committee, but Israel served 12 terms as a Salem Town Selectman. Furthermore, none of the porters joined the Salem Village Church. Meanwhile, the Putnams became leaders of a sizeable faction of Salem villagers, made up mostly of residents of modest wealth. Though they were opponents, yes, on a number of issues, the Putnams and Porters were not always at odds with each other. Both families had supported Reverend James Bailey, for example. As late as 1690, members of both families would sign yet another the petition by villagers to Salem town requesting separate township status. However, Samuel Parris and his role in the witchcraft crisis seems to have divided the families and their supporters into fiercely opposing political factions. On Tuesday, November the 16th, 1689, the Salem Village Church was officially gathered and Samuel Parris was ordained as its minister. Reverend Nicholas Noyes, Salem's town junior minister, presided and he was assisted by neighbouring ministers Samuel Philip of Rowley and John Hale of Beverley. Following the ordination ceremony, Paris gave his sermon which stressed the importance of sacraments. For decades, the Israelites, wandering out of Egypt and into the desert, had lacked sacraments. Then, led by Jesus, they crossed the Jordan River and God admitted them into a covenant with him. Similarly, the residents of Salem Village had lacked access to the sacraments. Some had sought them out occasionally in neighbouring churches, but now they were available to all on a regular basis. Just as God had removed dishonour and the foul Egyptian-like disgrace and reproach from the Israelites, he would forgive Salem Villagers, who now accepted the covenant and lived by it. It was the start of a new day in the village, a day for rolling away your reproach from off you by getting into the covenant of grace, and so coming under the seals of the covenant. Paris laid out their mutual responsibilities. As a servant of God, he noted, his duty was not only a role model, but a judge of men, to make differences, make them better and between the clean and unclean so as to labour to cleanse and purge the one, and confirm and strengthen the other. Paris asked the villagers to love, respect, and obey him, to pray for him and to endeavour by all lawful means to make my heavy work as much as you, lies light and cheerful. Furthermore, their quarrelling and unchristian-like behaviour must come to an end, otherwise Paris's life among them would be grievous. And the former merchant noted that his labour would be unprofitable. They now had an ordained minister and a church that would help to heal their wounds, bring the community together. Furthermore, parishioners were on notice that Paris was beginning a campaign to expend, expand the membership in that newly created church, as well as a crusade for moral reformation. Using the example of the Canaanites that Joshua had defeated, Paris warned, when wicked men think themselves most secure, many times they are most in danger. Following the sermon, Paris and his wife were among the 27 villagers who signed the covenant, officially creating the Salem Village Church. All were saints in other congregations who had transferred their membership to start the new church. The covenant itself is unremarkable and quite similar to those from neighbouring churches. Nowhere does it suggest the turmoil that enveloped the village or the greater tragedy that lurked in the future. The only hint of trouble lies in the identities of the signers of the document. Twelve Putnam's had joined the Covenant, including Thomas Putnam Jr.'s sister, Deliverance Putnam Walcott. They were joined by the Bray Wilkins and three members of the clan, who were neighbours, and close political allies of the Putnams. So, aside from Reverend Paris and his wife, 16 of the 25 signers of the Covenant, and 10 of the 16 were men, were from just two families, who collectively owned much of the land in the western end of Salem Village. None of the porters signed the Covenant, though many of them were members of the Salem Town Church, and thus qualified. Almost immediately, opposition began to form against Paris. It had against the three previous ministers. When the villagers next met on December 17th, they ordered Constable Edward Bishop to collect the ministerial rates from the 38 families who were delinquent in their payments. It was an ominous sign to have more families withhold their taxes. Than had signed the Covenant, and noticeable that not a single Covenant signer owed any taxes. The tough financial times may explain why some parishioners were delinquent in their taxes. By the fall of 1691, the colony's unstable finances and the growing expenses of war had forced the General Court to raise taxes on local property owners to unprecedented levels and as rumours circulate of enemy troops operating in Essex County, people must have truly wondered what, if anything, they were receiving in return for their taxes. Some residents may have shown their displeasure with the choice of minister and his financial settlement in a time honoured way in Salem Village by withholding their taxes. Soon some became opposed to parish. Paris for religious reasons. He'd acted quickly to grow the church. In his first year in office, the member, the number of members doubled. This increase was all the more remarkable, considering that Paris established a rigorous test for membership in neighbouring towns, were loosening requirements in the face of declining membership. Under the leadership of Reverend John Higginson, for example, Salem's town church had adopted the Halfways Covenant in 1665, though the church accepted it only after Higginsons threatened to resign. Salem Town also charged the requirements for church membership. Public confessions of faith were replaced by private confession to the minister, along with the candidates good behaviour for one month. Easing membership and the halfway covenant made it easier to baptise the next generation of worshippers and allowed many leaders of the community to finally join the church. Raleigh, Beverly, lynn and marblehead all adopted the halfway covenant as well topsfield was the only holdout the most of the saints who signed the Salem village covenant had initially become church members in neighboring towns under looser rules than paris now enforced for the new members interesting isn't it how it's going very interesting indeed paris refused to compromise Soon after his ordination, he met with the church members. They agreed an oral confession. Supported by testimony from church members, the village church also rejected the halfway covenant, allowing baptism only to children whose parents were full members of the church. These policies would have a disastrous effect on church membership and created a rift in the community. Paris's campaign to increase membership soon reached a plateau. During his second year in Salem, the church attracted but seven new members. Perhaps even more troubling was the growing absenteeism at weekly services and the failure of church members to show up regularly for communion. After the evening service on December 7, 1690, Paris complained about the waning attendance by church members. He also aired other concerns. He criticised the Lord's table equipped with just two pewter tankards for communion and asked the congregation to make better, generous contributions to better furnish it. Finally, he raised the issue of electing church deacons, a seemingly straightforward process that would nonetheless drag on for months in the quarrelsome congregation. The two lonely pewter tankards in the communion table must have made Paris's wistful about life in Boston, where wealthy congregations provided silver for the communion ware. He was pastor in a rural backwater, arguably the poorest and most contentious parish in the colony. Clearly, by 1691, Salem Village was divided on a range of issues, not least of which was the Halfway Covenant. James Bailey had favoured adopting the Halfway Covenant, while his successor, George Burroughs, had not. Perhaps this explains at least in part of Bailey's supporters' opposition to Burroughs. Though the evidence is admittedly thin, Diodat Lawson appears to have supported the Covenant. Paris, of course, opposed it. The village seemed unable to resolve the matter. Paris had based his stance on church membership and all the religious matters in Salem Village on a call for moral reformation. Some historians have suggested that these actions were the result of incompetence or ignorance. To the contrary, he was very knowledgeable about contemporary religious practices and firmly supported the efforts at moral reform that were under discussion at the time. Rather, it was his rigid commitment to orthodoxy and his evangelical piety that led him to fervently struggle in purifying Salem Village. Paris's campaign for moral reformation and his effort to build his congregation initially stressed the benefits of being a member of the elite- elect, he emphasised above all the sacrament of communion our Lord's Supper, which the Church agreed to celebrate every six weeks at the end of the Sabbath worship service. Saints were required to attend, and the non-elect were not allowed to participate. In the summer of 1691, as Paris's recruitment efforts increasingly fell on deaf ears, his sermons began to take on a more strident, even warlike tone. In this sermon of July 19th, 1691, for example, he noted that in giving his life, Christ Jesus hath purchased victory on the conquest for believers. Christ puts believers into a conquering capacity. Christ furnish ye believer with skill, strength, courage, weapons, and all military accomplishments for victory. They are well appointed for war. Harris's allusion to Christ's war against sinners may have been a reference to the growing hostilities on the northern frontier. A truce had been agreed to in November 1690, with formal treaty negotiations and an exchange of prisoners to start May 1st, 1691, in Wells. However, the Wabanaki chiefs failed to meet the Massachusetts delegation, which included William Stoughton and Bartholomew Gedney, fighting soon resumed involving troops from Essex County. On November the 11th, 1691, continuing on the theme of Jesus' suffering, resurrection and ascension into heaven, Paris noted that Christ ascended with the sound of a trumpet. Christ ascended in triumph, like a conquering Roman. This great champion ascended in a chariot, followed, on foot by by his captives. All our enemies, death, hell and law, and the devil. So Christ, the most glorious Redeemer, offers salvation, but sinners who did not embrace his offer should know that he is able to open the earth under thy feet to swallow thee, and to break the clouds over thy head to consume thee. Paris has increasingly inserted martial imagery into his sermons, a direct challenge to those sinners who would reject Christ's offer and refuse to join the covenant. It would not be long before his opponents took up the gauntlet a few days later, Paris' campaign against sinners broke out into open warfare in Salem Village. On October the 16th, 1691, elections were held for the village committee. The five men-elected Joseph Porter, Joseph Hutchinson, Daniel Andrew, Joseph Putnam and Francis Nurse were all opposed to Paris. A majority present at the village meeting voted not to collect Paris' salary for the year. Though, In theory, the committee existed solely for that purpose. In truth, some villagers had been unhappy with Paris, and the conditions of his hire since his arrival in Salem. The 38 households that had refused to pay the rates to support the minister's salary in the fall of 1689 accounted for 20% of his pay. It still had not been paid a year later. The next year, even fewer villagers paid their rates. In April 1691... The village committee determined that 29% of the 1690 rates remained unpaid. Many also refused to maintain the meeting house. In October 1690, the village had voted to make much-needed repairs to the 18-year-old building. Again, many were reluctant to contribute. In April 1691, the village meeting wrote a petition in the general court, asking it to order those who had not paid their assessment to do so. Paris's situation soon became dire. During November, he called several meetings of the male members of the church. Seventeen men gathered at his parsonage on November the 1st. They agreed to send three representatives to the village committee, urging that they collect the rates and provide for the minister's other needs, particularly his firewood, which was all but gone. Firewood had been included in the long list of items that Paris had negotiated for, when he first agreed to take the position in Salem Village, but somehow it had never made it into the written version of that agreement. When the church representatives attended the village meeting on November 10th, the committee refused to listen. Rather, the committee insisted that the church members and the pastor send them a signed letter making the request for his salary and firewood. A subsequent meeting of Paris and the churchmen resulted in a decision to file suit against the village committee in the Essex County Court which was meeting there next week. Paris also put another plea to the church members for firewood. Cut off from the salary and firewood, a desperate Paris raised his warlike tone in his sermon on November the 22nd. His text was from Psalm 110. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, and I will make thine enemies thy footstool. God's word was quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. The message was clear. The enemies of Paris and Salem Village Church faced the wrathful vengeance of the righteous God. The village committee, however, paid no attention to Paris. They responded by calling a village meeting for December the 1st to discuss their concerns with the minister. First, they questioned the loyalty of Paris's original contract with the town, approved by the village back on June 18th, 1689. Second, they questioned the irregular manner in which the parsonage had been indeed, been deeded to Paris back on October the tenth, sixteen eighty nine. Finally, they would discuss Paris's salary for the coming year and determine whether it would be paid by rising rates or by voluntary subscription. Essentially, they were manu- maneuvering to remove Paris from office. Unable to fire him. They planned to cut off his salary and his firewood and remove him from the parsonage. It is unclear whether the December first meeting ever took place. Paris himself recorded nothing that day in Salem village record book, though he also failed to write down any of the sermons for December. A deposition made by three of Paris's opponents in sixteen ninety seven however describes a contentious village meeting to which Paris was summoned to speak to the to his understanding of the initial agreement made between the village and him back on June 18th, 1689. Paris violently objected to the terms listed in the record book, saying that he never heard or knew anything of it, neither could or would he take up with it, or any part of it, and further he said, there were knaves and cheaters who entered it. Salem village's factional politics were not unique, Nostalgic views to the contrary, early New England towns were often rife with conflict and religious issues were often at heart. People regularly argued over the location of the meeting house and the seating plan for the congregation. Puritans also argued over the minister's doctrine. Byron Nissenbaum suggested that these factions and ultimately The accusations of witchcraft were grounded in the dramatic commercial changes transforming Salem Town and their impact on Salem Village. Economic anxieties preoccupied all villagers, and they seem to have been particularly frightening for the Putnam's and their allies. This group included many of the less well-off families who tended to live in the western end of Salem Village, further from the lure of commercial opportunities in Salem Town. As a result... Byron Nissenbaum suggests these people were seeing an erosion of their economic, social and political standing in the community. Recently, historians have argued that religion, not social or economic forces, was of primary importance. In reality, while scholars might argue over which factor was the most important, economic well-being, social standing and religious orthodoxy, all were significant factors, not just in Salem but in virtually every outbreak of witchcraft during the great age of the witch Hunts, Regardless of which factor ultimately was most important, the witchcraft accusations resulted from long-standing failure of leadership. Not only did Salem Village's minister fail to help resolve the divisions, but something about the ministry there brought out the worst in them. Overall, this was not a group to inspire confidence, let alone build a community of Christian believers in the face of adversity. Given its small size, poor pay, frontier location, Salem Village was not able to attract the gifted divines who could have healed its wounds. None of those who served there had a particularly long or impressive career in the pulpit. James Bailey waited three years after graduating from Harvard in 1669 before getting his first job in Salem Village. It would take him two years after leaving Salem before finding another position in Killingworth, Connecticut another frontier town. He lasted only nine years in Killingworth before moving back to Roxbury and spending the rest of his life as a doctor. George Burr's career was of course cut short by his execution for witchcraft, but there is little in it to suggest he would have gone on to have an impressive career, given he was only able to gain positions in the frontier town of Salem Village, in Falmouth, and briefly in Wells, Maine. Indeed, His return to dangerous edges of the frontier in Casco Bay in 1683 hints at his desperation. Falmouth had been entirely destroyed by King Philip's war and remained under constant threat during the uneasy peace of the post-war years. It appears that it took Burroughs four years to achieve his first position in Falmouth. Having fled from there in 1676, it took him five more years before his hiring Salem village. These gaps in his resume suggest he was not considered a strong candidate for vacancies. Deodat Lawson had a peripratic career in England and New England, sometimes leaving the ministry for other pursuits. After departing Salem, he would need six years to land his next posting in the Second Church of Stituate, Massachusetts. After less than four years, there he returned to England apparently intending to visit, but he never returned. In September 1698, his flock lamented about what to do, given the long and still continued absence of their pastor. However, most historians of Salem witchcraft agreed that Samuel Parris was the person who hardened factions and ultimately galvanised them into action. His business failures and personal insecurities, combined with the combative personality and rigid orthodoxy, all but guaranteed his failure as a minister. Under his leadership, the tensions and divisions in Salem village heightened. Paris's church stopped growing. Not only was absenteeism increasing, but the number of new members and baptisms declined in 1691. There would be no new members of the church, and only seven baptisms between December 1691 and November 1692. A remarkably low figure given that there were approximately 400 villagers who were neither baptised nor church members. The battle lines were drawn for a new kind of war against sinners, and much worse. Ah, so, now we get to understand how it could possibly lead to the witch trials, because here we have a minister that's already... Not very good at his job. Really is quite greedy if you ask me. So he's going to just start accusing people of witchcraft. And this is how it's all going to come about, isn't it? Because he's not getting the attention he needs or wants. And because the people are not attending his church. So they're all going to say, well, it's because of the devil. Great. Well done. Very good. Oh my days. Thank you for listening to this part of and witch trials when we come back we get into the afflicted and let's say the beginning on how things started to unfold many blessings